Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you're anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Today we're talking OTAs, a hot topic for sure in government acquisition, and we're just scratching the surface here with an overview of OTAs. We'll get into more nuances in future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. And whether you're government or industry, we'd love to hear your thoughts and experiences with OTAs. Visit skywayacq.com and hit the Contact Us button and let us learn and share your experiences on future podcasts. All right, let's get this one started. I love how government contracting is never boring. There's always more to learn and we'll never run out of topics to cover. Uh, This episode is a great example of that. Today, we're talking other transaction authority, otherwise known as OTA. This is a unique authority, but bestowed on certain federal agencies to award contracts outside the traditional FAR-based process. The the FAR-based acquisitions that you and I talk about a lot on nearly every episode, they're famous for not being very fast, right? And so they're not designed to be fast, the FAR-based ones. In most cases, the extra time it takes is driven by the FAR regulations. Therefore, the reasoning behind the other transaction authority is to ensure that the government has access to the commercial firms who may or may not want to do contracts with the government because of all that regulation. Yeah. And this, this allows the government to advance the use of you know, commercial technologies and techniques and, frankly, better connect commercial businesses to the government. Before we get into other transactions and explain some of that that you just said that blew my mind already, let's stop and say thanks. Thanks this week goes to Nadine Collins. She's the contracts manager or a contracts manager at X Corp Solutions. I want to thank Nadine for liking and sharing our contracting officer podcast episodes on the contracting officer podcast group on LinkedIn. Because when more people join that group and share our podcast episodes, more people find our podcast. Thanks, Nadine. All right, other transactions, and we'll probably say OTA because that's the common way it's described. It's a huge topic, and and we've we've put off discussing OTAs on the podcast for quite a long time, waiting to understand a little bit more about what they are, how they're used, what the good parts and bad parts are, and we're starting to get a better understanding of that now. And that that keeps changing. (laughs) That's part of the problem. At some point, we just got to plant the flag. Uh, This used to be, this concept of other transactions, used to be somewhat of a, a niche topic, but they've grown in popularity even though they've been around for over 65 years. (laughs) Yeah, it's not new. OTAs are, by definition, not FAR-based. And our podcast is usually about the FAR because that's the basis for where the contracting officer gets their authority. The authority to sign an OTA is a little bit different, and we'll get into that more. But it's it's not a FAR-based acquisition, which is outside of the norm for our podcast. Lastly, I want to point out, OTAs are evolving. You kind of alluded to that, Paul. We've been watching this kind of flow for a while. It's a fast-moving target. For for this episode, we're going to focus on what is an OTA and what it's not. All right, I'll start by defining, sort of, sort of defining OTA. It actually stands for Other Transaction Authority, and that it's it's funny that that the common description is OTA when. It's describing an authority. It's actually an OT. 
it's an other transaction that an agency or department has has authority to use. But that's that's beside the point. OTAs is is what they're called. <laughs> that's why we're yeah. going to describe them. OTA is stuck for some reason. The authority behind this, this this OTA model of contracting, was born in response to a specific challenge. Again, sixty five years ago, namely the concern over losing pace with the Soviet Union in the, in the space race when they launched Sputnik One in the fall of nineteen fifty seven. In time, Congress extended these different variations of this other transaction authority to other agencies, including DoD. And the motivation of this concept was to meet the foreign competition by providing an alternative acquisition strategy to what's in the FAR. Yeah, back then, I don't even think there was the FAR, but already they recognized True. that if we were going to compete in the space race, we needed authorities other than just traditional contracting. Other transactions are really defined by what they're not. So in, in 1958, the National Aeronautics and Space Act granted NASA the authority to, and I quote, enter into and perform such contracts, leases, cooperative agreements, or other transactions as may be necessary to accomplish its research and development mission. Notice that other transactions is it's it's really just the the catch-all at the end of the phrase. Enter into contracts, leases, cooperative agreements, or other transactions. It it was meant, I think, as do whatever else you have to do. And it, yeah, it's not in quotes and capitalized in that language out of the law. Right. They just said other stuff. Right. It was like you said, it's a catch-all. So now we're using that that awkward catch-all term as a description for a, for a type of contract, an other transaction. Just the name alone is one of the main sources of confusion about what it is and what it isn't. <laughs> other transactions are often called agreements. That kind of helps you avoid confusion between that and a FAR-based procurement contract. But in the end, they are legally valid contracts. If it were not for the FAR and the DFARs and all of the systems that we've created, another transaction would be called a contract. That would be confusing. Yeah. yeah. They still have the contract elements, I mean, offer, acceptance, consideration, authority, legal purpose, and meeting of the minds. Like this is an actual contract. They're signed by someone who has the authority to bind the federal government. And again, rabbit trail. In this case, it's an agreements officer, which is a little bit different than a contracting officer. Although a contracting officer can also be an agreements officer. But anyway. That's a whole other podcast right. episode. But at the end of the day, the terms and conditions can be enforced by and against either party. It's a contract. Like we said, this started with NASA for a specific reason. The authority was extended to the Department of Defense in the late 1980s, and, and now many other agencies have the authority. In 2016, 2017, 2018, really picked up steam, and the Department of Defense got permanent authority to award other transactions. It, it, it was not permanent. It was, it was temporary. It was try this out, see, see how it works. Now there's permanent authority in the DOD, to use OTs for research, for prototypes, and for production purposes. And there are also, I believe, a total of 11 agencies that have OT authority, but that's a podcast for a different day. As of today, yeah. yeah today. As of, yeah, true, as of today. So Congress created other transaction authorities sort of accidentally. It was part part of this this NASA authorization, but then they got purposeful about it and said, why don't we use this to, to mean 
non-FAR transactions to give agencies the flexibility to bring in commercial companies that wouldn't do business under traditional government acquisition procedures. Transactions, in quotes here, under this authority can take many forms and generally are not required to comply with the federal laws and regulations that apply to procurement contracts, grants, and cooperative agreements, which leaves them sort of wide open. Yeah, and there's therein lies the problem, right? Uh, w- wide open. The government system is used to it not being wide open, and government acquisition offices and government contractors have gotten used to the flow of how the system works. This is how you solicit and award a government contract. This is how you compete for and win a government contract. Everyone got comfortable with the the inefficiencies involved and learned how to had <laughs> learned how to make it work. Anyway, we get a whole podcast series based on that. Now we're in the Wild West. We usually talk acquisition time zones and execution time zones. Even though we're not talking far, all of that still applies here. You still have to have a requirement. You still need to do market research to figure out who could meet that requirement. And part of that market research could be, should we use another transaction versus a far-based acquisition? There's a determination to be made here. If you go with an OTA, you still have to release a solicitation in the RFP zone and contractors have to prepare a bid and you have to select a source. At that point, you award this contract and I'm going to call it a contract and you begin the execution time zones. You generally still want to do some type of contract kickoff and begin the honeymoon zone. There's the performance zone where the work is done. Because this is research or prototypes, you may not have a recompete, but you may decide to issue a follow-on production contract and you still have to wrap it up. So all of the acquisition and execution time zones still apply to other transactions. If you're not familiar with the acquisition time zones, we cover those in episode number three and the execution time zones, we cover those in episode 372. And in those episodes, we, we refer to everything in terms of the traditional FAR-based acquisition and execution <laughs> procedures. Yeah, probably right? true, Yeah, which makes this even more fun. Like we talked about, Kevin, not everyone can use OTAs, but but almost all now, I think you said there's there's 11 that, uh, agencies that are currently authorized. It's not just NASA and DOD. Yeah, it's been expanded over time. Uh, it was seven a few years ago, and then it was nine. Now it's 11, including agencies like the Department of Energy, the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, and others. The most public user within the Department of Defense is the Defense Innovation Unit. They've been out front in accomplishing their acquisitions through prototype other transactions. And some of these prototype transactions can be pretty large. The authority actually goes up to $500 million within an agency before they have to ask permission. If you go above $500 million, you have to uh, go up to the the undersecretary of defense i think i think to get approval beyond that but 500 million dollars you can do a pretty hefty prototype let's talk about some of the the limitations or or fears from the government side with with other transactions other transactions are they're not covered by the far right so it can be a great acquisition tool however with great power comes great responsibility because like you talked about we're familiar with the acquisition process under the far if we use the authority to award something outside of the FAR, but we don't use a outside of the FAR mindset, we end up defeating the purpose of the other transaction authority. 
Yeah, the object here is to award a clear, easy to understand, and effective commercial contract. I've seen OTAs released with all of the usual FAR clause flowdowns, which gains you what? You're, you're essentially issuing a FAR-based contract at that point. Now, it is completely understandable that a lot of government people don't have the experience to contract outside of, of the comfort zone of the, the well-understood FAR processes. So it's not surprising. What's surprising to me is it goes through the review process and ends up still getting released. I mean, I, I think starting with the well-understood process is understandable, but if you're trying to use an other transaction, it should look like something other than a FAR-based contract. Remember, OTAs are meant to bring in commercial industry that ordinarily wouldn't do business with the federal government because of all the regulations. On the DOD side, at least, OTAs are not to be awarded to traditional government contractors, right? That, that's the whole idea. If you're releasing an OTA with all the FAR clause flowdowns, you're getting back to the traditional government contractors that are used to that kind of thing. But it gets kind of muddy because small businesses are considered non-traditional government contractors. So small businesses that do 100% government business can be considered non-traditional government contractors and receive other transaction awards. There's also sort of this middleman thing where the government will award another transaction to a consortium that then runs the competitions for the government and awards contracts. It, it's like, like a pass-through that, that shields the government from, from doing the acquisition and, and sort of gets you out, outside of the FAR. Anyway, it's no surprise that people are very confused about what is an OT? How do I, how do I compete? How do I win? How, why is it not a contract? Who is this consortium? Other transactions are, I mean, they're effectively commercial contracts, right? So they require a commercial contract mindset, like I was saying a minute ago, not a FAR-centered mindset. And as a contracting officer, I was trained in the FAR. So just doing a regular contract, a commercial contract, doesn't come naturally. That's kind of your point. When I started Skyway, our, our contracts were like this. They were commercial contracts. The first time I signed a three-page contract for a year of support to a contractor, my mindset was, oh, it's not big enough <laughs> because I'm used to having all these clauses and all this extra stuff that's needed per the FAR. And so it's like the shadow of the FAR is over top of the contracts. Well, the same thing can happen with other transaction authority contracts is we have this shadow of the FAR that people are used to using that makes them feel like we just added a layer of review by running it through a consortium, but it's basically still a FAR-based contract. I'm not sure we're actually clearing things up too much. That's sort of the point of, of, of this podcast is, is that OTAs are not well understood. And again, going back to just the name of it, OTA doesn't help you understand it. If you're on the industry side, remember that the idea for OTAs is to bring in non-traditional defense contractors. So known as NDCs. That's where that language comes from. Because you have to have an acronym. The thought is this is a way for the government to get to commercial companies. And this is also a way for those companies to quickly engage with the government. My fear is, and it's probably not just my fear, is what it's become is just another way for traditional defense contractors to win government work. They're the ones with the experience and the desire to deliver things to the government. If you look at the consortiums, Many, many of the partners in these consortiums that are competing for work 
under other transactions are the same companies that you'd see competing for work anywhere else in the government. When the authority for OTAs goes up to $500 million for a prototype, it kind of encourages that behavior. That's a big prototype, right? So the biggest, only the biggest companies are going to be able to win a $500 million contract, be trusted with the award of a $500 million contract. And with that authority for a $500 million prototype comes the opportunity to sole source a follow-on production contract for, for the production of, of whatever that prototype was. If it works out, if you build a prototype that is exactly what the government wants to buy, they have the opportunity to award a sole source contract to you to build that. And that makes total sense. That's the way you'd want to do it, right? You wouldn't want to spend your money on research and development to build a prototype, get the perfect one, and then have to compete who's going to produce that. Well, you want the person that but designed it to produce it, right? Yeah. yeah. It totally makes sense. I think the government has a lot of work to do to move farther towards commercial open contracting than, than OTAs are looking right now. And I think another fear is that because OTAs very much resemble FAR-based contracts in many cases, and because the competitors very much resemble the same competitors you'd see on a FAR-based procurement, sooner or later, Congress will decide that these are just being abused. It's, it's just a way to get around all the rules that we've put in place over all these years, and we're not really doing anything different but getting around a bunch of rules. And as a result, Congress will lock these up, change it, do away with it in a way that, that hurts us all rather than, than lets us use OTAs to, to, to be more effective. Exactly. My concern is that Congress might be thinking or will be thinking eventually at the rate these are growing that the government, is th the acquisition team is going to start thinking it's the tool for every situation. And it's not. Um, OTAs are another tool. They're not the only tool. In some cases, depending on how you do them, they're not even the fastest tool, right? They may not be the best tool because they're not designed for every situation and not even every agency. That This pendulum has swung really far on OTAs, which is why it's such a, a popular topic. They're not far-based. They have a different set of rules behind them, a different set of skill sets, quite frankly, that's needed. So the concepts behind them, they're evolving, and we'll do more of episodes as, as the understanding and appropriate application of OTAs <laughs> expands. But the, the, at, the, at the end of the day, think of them as a commercial contract. And as a contracting officer, we're not trained for that. Hmm. What could go bad there? <laughs> well, that's, yeah. my, that, that's my parting thought. You can see it coming down the road. It's, it, it's in fashion. It's actually encouraged to use them. We may not have the experience yet to use them wisely and, and appropriately in, in the right situations and only the right situations. Sooner or later, a mega defense contractor it will be awarded a gigantic contract through an OTA that goes poorly, doesn't deliver what it's supposed to. The government wastes a lot of money not getting what they meant to get. And at that point, we hit the wall and OTAs are swept away as the flexible tool they were designed for because- they were used for something that it really wasn't designed for. Well, and my hope that podcast episodes like this one will keep that from happening. <laughs> Let's hope. I think we're going to have to get a little deeper for, for that to help. But hopefully we've introduced the topic and talked a little bit about what OTs are and what, what OTs, I said, I said it, OT, OTA, what OTAs are and what they're not. And with that, I'll talk to you later, Kevin. 
I'll see you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Need help understanding OTAs and how they help the government buy from you? Skyway's team of former contracting officers is here for you with custom consulting and training. Visit SkywayACQ.com or give us a call at 877-884-5280. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.